So philosophers is our name, I guess. Philosophers. Philosophers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's who we are, I guess, as a group. Um, we are two individuals, though. Right. On top of that. Um, and what who we are, I guess, isn't so much as important as what we do. And I do feel like the longer we sit down and we do these, the more, the better you'd be able to tell who we are, you know? And I think just just to launch right into it, you know, the who we are will, will change. I don't think either of us is going to claim that we're going to stay the same. I agree. I, I was going to bring up that even at this very moment, I'm in the process of totally uprooting my uh, previous philosophy and, and installing a new one. So, oh, nice. And this is far from the first time that I've done it, and I'm sure it won't be the last. So we are definitely, throughout, throughout this venture, we are likely to change our minds about many things, and we're not going to be pinned down to one particular uh, personality or, or philosophy. Sure. And I, and I think that's a good thing, and I hope more than anything else that anybody who listens to this besides the fact of you know hopefully we're a little bit entertaining or uh, hearing discourse done in a simple manner will help anybody who's got their own ideas and doesn't really have anyone to share them with or maybe trying to form new ideas or just hear other perspectives that aren't you know shills <laughs> and uh, but on top of all that to just to hear other people going through transitions of their own you know their various philosophies and entertaining new ideas and uh, espousing uh, new truths, you know, air quotes on truth there, but uh, um, getting closer to the truth, I guess, you know, because as our mission statement, you know, kind of is, is entertaining ideas ourselves and others in pursuit of the truth, you know, and we'll probably get into it much more later what the truth is or can you know what truth is but I that's suppose something that is probably safe to establish now uh, without having to get into it is that we both agree that there is a truth yes and it's not something that that changes based on the whims of people no and uh, launching into what we do I guess we are seeking that truth and I guess it's also safe to assume that at this point in time we believe that the truth can be sought through civil discourse in concert with other things, of course, but uh, the easiest one to sit down and do in an afternoon is civil discourse. Um, and that's sort of what gives rise to the uh, to the name philosophers, of course, right, yeah, is because course. we're just two two guys in uh, figuratively armchairs talking about <laughs> life, the universe, and everything. Uh, all the while uh, not, not doing any of the legwork that got us to where we are. Exactly. You know, I wish we had literal armchairs. It'd be a lot more comfortable. But yes, maybe one of these days. Maybe someone will buy us armchairs. <laughs> but uh, no, I agree. And uh, I don't think we, I think it's safe to say also, you know, go ahead and throw out our initial disclaimer that we should never hopefully have to make again is we are not expert philosophers by any means right not formally educated in philosophy or science for that matter mm -hmm. and uh, we, we have various you know interests outside of philosophy as well and that we are probably more technically trained in um, I don't think it would be too presumptuous for us to say that we are you know educated individuals but 
even if even if that is the case, I don't think that that is necessarily a prerequisite to, you know, armchair philosophize and just think about things uh, and air them in an open discourse with, without getting distracting, of course. Right, I think the real advantage that education might give you is just the mere exposure to other ideas that you hadn't considered before that you wouldn't get if the only ideas you've been exposed to were the ones that you grew up around. Exactly. And maybe even the, uh, the bootstrappable way to, the idea of how to deal with ideas, you know, that's, that's a thing that you kind of have to bootstrap yourself into because there is no such thing as an idea. There are, there's nothing before ideas that you can have about ideas. You know, they, they, self, um, they self-define themselves. And I think it's interesting that you can look throughout history and see how definitions have changed as we've discovered more about the world. But, you know, for anything unknown, it starts out as just an idea and a definition that, you know, as we say, we're trying to seek the truth. We then try to we then try to tweak those definitions and those trains of thought and processes towards the truth. You know, starting from just an arbitrary point on of an experience, usually from one person or a small group of people, and then we remix that more and more, and then we try to move it towards the truth. And I think that's just you know we are a microcosm of what that's that process. You know, just the two of us here, and then uh, of course anybody who ever listens to this. You know, I think. I, I definitely think that you know we would be open to interactions at some point, uh, even if it's just in the basic form of a question and answer, or you know just hearing what other people have to think, but or getting all the way to having guest appearances and things like that. Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. Um, but for now, though, you know everything's got to start somewhere, and uh, I think this is our somewhere. Um, so I think that that encapsulates it pretty well, who we are and what we do, and. Um, without going too much into our personal lives because that's not really the point, you know? Uh, like, you know, just to recap on what I said, you know, I don't think anyone's, I, I don't like that people use their personal experience as evidence. You know, that's an antidote, in the, uh, antidote, sorry. An anti- anecdote, <laughs> anecdote. Goodness, anecdote. now you've got me yeah. where I can't say it. Yeah, my apologies. Um, I think that pretty much well, you know, cuts it well and dry, uh, who we are and what we do. And I agree. Yeah. I think one thing I want to go ahead and jump into then, since, you know, I don't, want, I don't know if you'd call this jumping to any topic or popping the topic stack, you know, which is our way of keeping track of the topics, but uh, I'm going to impromptu throw one in here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and cite it because it is a great work. Uh, it, it's a great video. Uh, CPG Gray's videos on, uh, he, he has a lot of great content. Um, I think you and I both have watched a lot of his stuff or at least some of his stuff. Um, but to keep in line with uh, what we said about ourselves and how we don't think we're going to hold the same beliefs uh, even through the duration of this podcast series, however long it may last. Um, he talks about, in some ways, having the ability to separate I, not only ideas from yourself, but the deeper abstractions as to what those ideas come from or what they help form which is, you know, your morality and your ethics and your principles, you know, all of those things. Um, I'm kind of just shoehorning their actual definitions for the time being. Um, I think it's, a, you know, at some point we're going to go through and actually, I think we, we're going to do a short segment on um, people keep using these words, but I don't think they know what they mean. And uh, or we'll go through probably each of those words and give the actual definition to what they mean so we can be concise. Um, because that's important to us is 
being as concise and accurate and consistent as possible. Um, so that way you don't listen to this one and then however many down the road and we're talking about something different and our definitions for the same things have changed. You know, we should try to keep this consistent as possible. But before I get too off track, uh, having that ability, you know, and I think that's one of the greatest things that I think regardless of what ideas we have or where we'll go, I think we would both encourage people to, uh, you know, don't don't think about don't don't hold too closely and don't let your morals and your principles necessarily define you. You know, I think keeping in mind that people, each of us as individuals having our own agency, can define what we believe to be uh, the right and wrong thing to do, and in various cases, and have the rituals and processes throughout our lives that we keep and hold to. You know, right? We shouldn't we shouldn't forget that beliefs are secondary to ourselves right. and they can uh, come and go uh, based on new experiences and new information um, and we we sometimes get so caught up in the behavior we exhibit based on our beliefs that the beliefs sort of become part of our identity and that's that's a dangerous thing yeah. uh, that, that we need to avoid. Exactly. No doubts there. Um, and uh, I would encourage that video uh, for any of you who haven't seen it. If you ever know what we talk about, if we ever if we ever do mention a video or a source um, of something that you know, either of us is consumed and want to talk about, you know, we will do our best to go ahead and link those things in the description below, and uh, that way you can see them yourself. Or you know, if you're not on, uh, depending on what medium you watch this, they'll be in the description of the bio. They, they will be somewhere that is easy for you to find, um, so that you can go view them for yourselves because that's. You know that that's the biggest thing. If you have the ability to ever consume something directly, I would always recommend it. You know, getting a secondhand account um, can be useful, but uh, I think always being able to consume it and think for yourself on it first, preferably first. I think. Um, well, this is even a principle of uh, of historical method is that secondhand sources are always considered worse than firsthand sources. Right. So it's always best to see the original, even if we have something else to say about it. Sure. And I think it would be a, uh, you know, it's an enriching experience for both people because that's really how you're able to participate in a discourse is uh, in, in a better way. Because I think you and I consume a lot of the same things. While we have our own various interests and outlets that, won't, that you know, I, I, I will listen to or read these certain areas and these people and you will others, but we do tend to have a pretty large overlapping. And that's what allows us to have a more, you know, well-rounded discussion uh, is having the balance of those two things. and. Uh, you know, because you're already going to bring your own perspective. You know, each of us is going to bring our own perspective from the get-go. It's unavoidable. You carry it with you every day. Exactly. <laughs> some would some would argue that you are your perspective in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know, I guess there's something to be said about that. Something to be said about that. Maybe in the later episode. This is going to be hard sometimes not to get too drug off on tangents. We're going to have to be a lot more structured in the future. <laughs> Maybe we need to get one of those chess timers and uh, go back and forth. Go back and forth. Exactly. But see, that could that could yield an awkward situation where it's like, oh, well, Joe has not shut his mouth up for 30 minutes. And uh, well, it looks like we're going to hear from uh, uh, David for the rest of it. First names only. Of course. Of course. Um, but maybe. I don't know. This is new to us. I think that's another thing to point out. You know, we 
we are amateurs almost in every sense here <laughs> as to, uh, I guess, the natures of philosophy and to these uh, podcasts. You know, this is something we talked, I think we just kind of talked about doing on a whim. And uh, we were sort of already doing it on a regular basis anyway. We exactly. just didn't have microphones or yeah. an intent to stick to a particular topic. Right. We would just kind of wonder. But yeah, definitely. I think more more than a handful of occasions, we, we would find ourselves talking about something still and, you know, either realizing that an ample amount of time has gone by and then it's like, oh, you know, what about our other responsibilities? <laughs> um, so I don't know. Hopefully the, there's a good seed here and we'll get better at it as we go. Actually, I don't doubt that, you know. I think that's one thing you and I both have re realized in each other as much as long as we've known each other is that uh, both of us seek to improve on anything that we spend our time on. And uh, I think that's a that's an admirable trait to have in someone to, you know, be a partner in anything in. So, well. Do we want to talk specifically about ideal discourse? Yes, so let's talk about ideal discourse. Okay. What about ideal discourse? What What is ideal discourse, David? Well, ideal discourse uh, occurs when two people uh, approach a conversation in, in a way that acknowledges the the benevolence of their interlocutor and their, that that. The two interlocutors are, are merely people with different perspectives coming to talk about a similar thing um, and to try to reconcile their differences. Uh, ideal discourse does not involve seeing one's interlocutor as an enemy uh, or as inferior in some way uh, or otherwise uh, of, with bad intentions. You should always assume the best of your interlocutor and, um, and if they say something that you think uh, is misguided, then uh, to to draw attention to it in a non-accusatory way. It's hmm. fair. I think it's a pretty accurate def definition of discourse. Hmm. I don't really have much to add to that. <laughs> um, I guess the, uh, I guess I could just comment on it is to say that that's, it's a rare thing these days, and it, we've already gone over this amongst ourselves, we're not going to begin to cover recent events or anything like that, but it's kind of difficult not to uh, at least have a sense of it when we all exist in the present, as far as we know. As far as we know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you just see how the world goes, and I feel like... Um, there are all sorts of reasons why. I, uh, there, there, I think anybody who's anybody who's human has known plenty of people in their life, whether they realize it or not. And when I say no, I mean just in the most, you know, acquaintance-like sense. Superficial. You know? Superficial. Mm -hmm. There you go. Um, but, you know, I'm still a young man, but I, I feel there are very few people and that could approach a discourse like that. And... Um, I do think it's important that anybody who does want to be to engage in a discourse like that, you, you got to have to know to some degree the person you're going to be engaging in that discourse with, um, or at least have a common understanding. And that's why, like for the longest time, you know, I would see these videos or hear these read these articles about finding common ground. You know, and I I, I hate that phrasing to a point because it's finding common ground. 
assumes a compromise, you know? Well, I, I actually don't think so. And I, I think that it is actually possible to have a good and positive discourse with someone that you really know nothing about. So something that I'd like to cite is uh, uh, the concept of street epistemology, which is a specific application of the Socratic method. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't invented by uh, this person, but it's been popularized by somebody named Anthony Magnavosco. Uh, and he also has a YouTube channel, if, uh, if you want to look that up, uh, in which he approaches strangers in, uh, in public places uh, and conducts interviews with them in which he uh, has, has the subject choose a topic uh, of some belief that they hold deeply uh, and, and particularly one that influences them the most in their, in their daily life. And then he questions them on it, no matter what it is, even if he actually happens to hold the belief himself. Um, he, will, he will apply questions and try to identify why it is that they hold the belief. That's where the epistemology uh, comes in. Um, and, and this creates a, a non-hostile environment because he never makes any assertions of his own or claims about their belief, never makes any assumptions, and if he ever feels like he doesn't understand what someone's saying, then that just opens another uh, path of, of questioning to try to get to the bottom of it. Hmm. Hmm. Fair enough then. I'll have to check that out because uh, to this to this point in time, I, maybe it's because I'm just a disagreeable person. I don't know, David. Uh, <laughs> maybe I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. That sounds amazing. I'll have to check that out because it's a little hard for me to believe. But after hearing you explain it in that sense, I guess you're correct. Um, I guess to temper what I said, caution should be used in the least. Because anytime you begin to talk to people, especially about ideals they tend to hold deeply, uh, you can't always assume that other people are willing to change their minds. You know, I think that's, or change their ideas, or even think that their ideas can be changed or true, like what they might hold to be, and I'm gonna use the layman term for truth here because that's what some people, you know, Anyone who says my truth or whatever. Well, uh, indeed, and I, I never said that these interactions always go favorably uh, sure. because many times they don't, although more go positively than you might expect. Hmm. Um, but uh, w one thing uh, that's actually uh, good that you, that you brought up the, the concept of one's own truth hmm. uh, because uh, Anthony himself actually ran into this a number of times by accident uh, when he would question people under the assumption that they believed in an objective truth, only to find out that they didn't, and then this unraveled the entire conversation leading up to that point. So he began, he, he now always begins, uh, well I shouldn't say always, but most of the times he, he remembers to begin the conversation uh, with, a, with a thought experiment in which he has a, uh, a bottle of Tic Tacs, and he, uh, he makes the claim that there is either an even or an odd number of Tic Tacs in the bottle and then questions his uh, interlocutor um, about whether they, whether they believe that that is the case. There is either a, an even or an odd number. And then if he were to then further claim there is an odd number, could they count them out and he be wrong? Hmm. So it's a way of identifying how someone sees the truth before you get too far down a rabbit hole and, uh, and, have, and have, well, the, the conversation fall out from under you because you didn't expect that. Right. 
So laying the groundwork then, like taking taking your due diligence on that. And I guess well, that, in some way, to, to use the term that you just expressed disdain for, finding common ground, wrong. the very minimal common ground of there is a truth and people can be wrong. Okay, fair enough. I can see that point. Um, in that sense, if if that's what I, I maybe that's what people mean when they say let's find common ground. I don't know. I can't I can't assume to know what someone intends when they just use a phrase like that. I don't think that people normally mean something like that as common ground because I don't think that most people uh, even consider that people think about the truth differently than them because it seems so obvious. Mm. Even no, no matter which view about truth you have, it seems obvious what it is. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> um, yeah, most things I guess that we hold that closely are, uh, are things we're so familiar with. Um, especially things that are tied directly to our own perceptions of reality. Um, it, like, like, if you grew up around like, like in an environment, I guess this is going to lead towards your biases too, which are essentially just common experiences you've had over the course of your consciousness that there is a recurring theme and they have similarities. So you kind of, in your eight mind, you know, loop them back in and just kind of make a nugget out of all of those occurrences and just, you can make, on which you can base assumptions. But uh, I guess in my experience, <laughs> The majority of people, uh, you know, and I grew up in around, uh, and I'm not going to even go too far into it, but you know, I grew up around a lot of religious people. I grew up in a religious institution, and that typically isn't a place where the truth is. You know, and I see this all the time with a lot of religions. Um, not, all, not, I'm not going to say all religions or all people who hold religious beliefs necessarily, but it's a common theme in any type of ritualistic behavior and of which religion tends to be you know and by ritualistic i mean any kind of repetitive behavior for which there is an artificial standard you kind of maybe created for yourself or or if that's not the religion itself then at least most religions uh heavily encourage ritualistic behavior sure um but, uh, you know, something as simple as brushing your teeth every morning is technically a ritual Correct. as far as, you know, it's just something that you do routinely. Um, however, why is it routine? Most of the time, those are self-enforced. No one makes you necessarily brush your teeth every day, you know. I mean, sure, there are social norms. Like, people might not want to talk to you if your breath smells badly, but uh, you, you enforce it upon yourself. Like, there is no one in your house, uh, if you're an adult anyway, <laughs> um, or if you're an adult who lives on their own and is self-sufficient, I guess, uh, that enforces you. It's just a, it's something that you've always done based on an outside stimuli that makes it just Well, there might common. be, there might be many reasons why uh, you'd hold yourself to it. It might, it might be just because it habits form and it's what you've always done and you just do it and you don't even think about it. Or you, uh, you might be thinking about uh, someone you'd like to impress and uh, you don't want to uh, gross them out with your stinky breath because you were too lazy to brush your teeth in the morning. Sure. Uh, or it might be because it makes you feel better for having done it, or it might be because you uh, dread the long-term consequences of not doing it, or any number of things. Sure, and it, it could be any number of things, but all of those things tend to be the reason why you do it, the conscious reason, 
But I guarantee most people that have, say, the conscious fear of the long-term consequences of something, not brushing their teeth in this case, um, they wake up and they don't wake up thinking about that long-term consequence, generally speaking. And I don't think so. I've never woken up uh, and, well, I don't know. I'm not a person who motivates myself to brush my teeth by the long-term consequences necessarily, for better or for worse. But I don't think that a person that, that's their, that's the thing that if you get them talking about it, it's like, man, brushing your teeth is great. And they think, yeah. And the real reason that like sticks in their head is, I just don't want to have bad teeth or dentures or whatever. They still don't wake up every morning and begin that day's consciousness thinking that. Their body has already, when they walk into their bathroom and they reach for the toothbrush, it's not conscious at that point, I don't believe. Especially if you're anyone like me who wakes up still unconscious um, and <laughs> like walks in, who's not awake until he sits down in his car to leave for work, which is incredibly dangerous. But I still, I, I could have full conversations that I don't remember. Coffee works wonders. Um, coffee, coffee works wonders. Tell you, yeah. Um, the best pesticide ever to drink. I gotta say, is coffee a pesticide? Yes, yes it is. Hmm. Well, nicotine. No, no, sorry, nicotine. Caffeine is a pesticide. Coffee itself isn't, but uh, I guess the key, the reason you drink coffee. I suppose there are some who like it for the bitter taste, but. Raising my hand right now. Yeah, but for waking yourself up, sake. The heat and primarily the caffeine are the motivator, or the uh, the things that really help you do that. And uh, yeah, uh, caffeine being an alkaloid, like nicotine, all the enes in that case, are naturally occurring pesticides. So, fun fact, just a little off jute. Um, so good to see Peter Gray video about that. I'll link as well. <laughs> um, who also shares your love for coffee, Yankee? <clears throat> anyway. Um, I resent that. Mm, go ahead. You can resent it all you want. <laughs> um, I'll sip my hot tea instead. But uh, red coat. <clears throat> anyway, the people who wake up don't. You don't think about those things. It's the it's the ritualistic nature of it that that reinforces it, and that reinforcement is subconscious or mechanical to a degree. It's not. It's not high in your mind. And so take that same principle that we spent the last five minutes like trying to unweave and apply it to just an idea. Um, you know, what is right and what is wrong? And what's interesting is you can apply those ideas, you can apply that ritualistic behavior to reinforce those ideas independently of one another. You know, I think that's kind of what's more dangerous about it too. Like for instance, you can habitually brush your teeth, but you can also be a habitual uh, energy drink drinker, which is terrible for your teeth. Or like a person who dips, for instance. Now, I'm not saying that all people that dip are just totally incongruent with the fact that they brush their teeth, but the person, for instance, that their primary stated motivator is I fear you know, bad dental hygiene but also dips and brushes their teeth. It's like, okay, you fear bad dental hygiene, right? Yes, so why do you dip? It's like, oh, well, I don't, I, but I brush my teeth. It's like, no, you, it's, you see, there's, there's an inconsistency. One of these does not fully offset the other. Exactly, and you can't really cite, I think, just that one naked reason. Don't get me wrong, you can have conflict. I think there's nothing wrong, and it's totally natural to have conflicting desires and thoughts. Well, the the mind is very segmented. Yes. In this way, in which 
Uh, pe people often do do things or hold beliefs that are contradictory, and this doesn't occur to them because the contradictory beliefs only come up in separate contexts. They never are forced to interact, and this is the whole uh, the whole uh, underlying uh, premise of the concept of uh, cognitive dissonance. Right. Which I, I think, you know, that phrase is, I guess, another big reason as to why we sit down to do this. Because um, I, I think it's always, it, it is always, I assert that it's always a good idea to try to um, resolve cognitive dissonance as best you're able. Um, whether, and I think resolving that cognitive dissonance is a way towards the truth. Because I believe, uh, I think when we get into defining, like, okay, let's, let's go ahead and define it. You know, truth, because you and I both have already stated that we, you know, unpreparedly, you know, we might we might revisit it later to go, you know, get our notepads out and get real specific here. But in a broad sense, you know, we we've stated that we believe the truth that there is a truth. There is a truth. It's an objective truth. And yes, objective in the sense that uh, it would be the same whether we were here to experience and or discover it or not. Okay. That's kind of what I, I guess I intended by that. Yep. Um, remember, we're keeping fast and loose with the definitions here today. Right. Um, we are both flying by the seat of our own pants. Um, so, what other qualities does the truth have that we that we can, or how would we be able to describe what we claim the truth is, or how, how we're defining truth, I guess? Uh, like, what other qualities would it have? Um, well... Hmm. Well, I feel like this is a this is a fool's errand, uh, sure. given that I think both of us can also accept uh, the assertion that no human being actually knows the truth. Okay. And so, admitting that neither of us has all the details, we can't we can't really describe it. Okay. Um, that said, we can we can try to enumerate ways that we can identify whether a claim has truth to it. Okay. Uh, the most straightforward, well, I say straightforward, the, the most uh, rigorous way being science itself, mm -hmm. uh, in which someone might make a claim about, say, physics. It's very easy to test these. Well, I say easy, not really anymore. <laughs> Classical physics was very easy to test. Um, you know, someone might make a claim, say, for every force there is a, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. This is measurable, we can test. And if we ever come across an interaction in which this is not the case, then we throw this out and say, well, that's actually false and we need to get to the bottom of what it really is. Why is it normally like this? Yeah. And I, and I think that's a pretty, obviously that's a good standard too. It's a harsh standard, you know. The, uh, first of all, something has to be falsifiable for it to even make this cut you know it has to be able to be, there has to be a way you could prove it false even if there is no scenario in which it is because you can't know that going in right you in order to have a in order to really have justified a belief you must be able to identify some experience you could have which would render the belief false in your mind uh, and this it, such an experience might be being presented with new conflicting information with the belief. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 
when we say there is truth, it's not so much that there is a truth. You would say. I think I think there actually is a truth, but trying to get a grip on what it is is beyond our reach, and we shouldn't bother trying to chase. Uh, we shouldn't bother trying to chase it because we we get the track record is so poor <laughs> for for getting such a thing right. We probably shouldn't even try. Fair enough. Take the more uh, rigorous approach, I guess. Right. Figure out as many things that are true as possible and believe as few things as possible that are not true. I think that should really be the goal, not trying to identify what the truth is, but how to measure the truth of things and hold as many true beliefs and as few false beliefs as possible. Okay. And mentioning the false beliefs is important. Some people will, will question why someone would say, well, why, why do you care about the false beliefs? Well, if I wanted to only believe as many true things as possible, then I would be the embodiment of, of gullibility. Literally anything ever proposed to me, I would accept because this would result in me believing as many true things as possible, even if I believed a whole bunch of nonsense alongside it. Right. So you must you must also throw in that you want to throw out false beliefs if you want to really get a grip on reality, whatever that might be. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I guess that person would be not really the opposite of a nihilist, I guess, but like a person. I don't even know. I don't even know how you would define. I don't know anybody who is like that. It's very, I guess, naive in a sense. Um, well, no, I don't think that anyone's like that. It goes against human psychology. Oh, and uh, to, to, well, yes. Well, it goes against human psychology because of the survivability dangers. Mm-hmm. Right. And I guess in the same vein, you. I guess we're dancing around skepticism, like the yeah. push of skepticism is mm-hmm. what we're kind of we're beating around at this point, uh, because that's that's you pretty well described it. You know, or the, the behavior of being skeptical uh, just then in that way. Um, I think that's another important thing, too, is to clarify about, you know, you hear people say they're members of the skeptic community or they are a skeptic. And there's the classic skeptics. And uh, some people just say that they are skeptical or skepticism as a philosophy there's there's all these this, this is a dangerous word because it carries some baggage with it much like the word theory might mm. in which in certain contexts say science theory has a very technical definition right which does not correspond with how the word theory is thrown about in everyday speech skepticism is much the same way uh, where it philosophically has a very technical definition but when someone says, I'm skeptical, it just means that they're doubtful of something. Right. Or it might mean that they're a cynic and they don't really believe anything anyone has to say. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going at this is, you know, I think the, you know, because we, we talk about, you know, having, uh, approaching discourse accurately. I think being, having a healthy skepticism is a part of approaching discourse as well, because I think if you didn't have some type of healthy I'm calling. I'm using the faux philosopher uh, version of the word skeptic uh, here uh, or skepticism. Uh, if you didn't have some sort of skepticism, you might not even engage in a discourse in the first place or want to. Um, or if you did, it wouldn't be very productive. I don't think. Like I think, 
in some way you have to be prepared to take something as a falsity you know say this thing is false or i believe this is false or i do not believe it is at least correct and uh well really the essence of skepticism is to suspend belief until you've been given a good reason to believe and uh along the way because you're not perfect you might accept something that isn't true but it seemed justified at the time but you d- you need to be careful not to ally yourself to a belief ever uh, because doing so is basically dooming yourself to never getting uh, out of a false belief if something new were to come along and discredit it yeah and uh, no I think that's pretty succinct it's pretty well done um, and uh I guess where I originally was going with it is to even you said it in the definition, you know, suspending belief, um, not disregarding belief, um, and I feel that's the problem. I guess you know there there's a continuum of people out there uh, that would that do engage in discourse, you know, uh, civil discourse, you know, with varying forms of civility, I suppose, but uh, I think. I guess this is one of the reasons that I was kind of motivated to do this podcast. I feel like there are a lot of people out there that fall when when they approach the discourse. You know, I'm not talking about as an individual just speaking their mind or exploring a topic individually. But when they approach the discourse, I feel there are a lot of people that fall really hard into, and I, I blame politeness first of all. Yeah. My disagreeable self here blames politeness. I feel like there are so many people that do fall towards uh, you know, just being polite and culpability and just being able to get along with others. And that's why discourse can be hard, because especially on the things that I would argue matter the most. Well, we have this meme in society about respecting beliefs, and I think that that's a very bad thing. Uh, you know, we have these these you know, coexist bumper stickers and things like that, mm-hmm. as if as if these are just things that we have to deal with. Um, and Well, and to a degree, they are things we have to deal with, but it's not It's not like, oh, well, you know, this person believes that, so you shouldn't mess with them about it. Well, what if that belief makes them hurt somebody in, in some way in the future? Or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, shouldn't we be concerned about how much people value the truth? And if people do value the truth, then they should be ready to have their beliefs questioned. Sure. Um, and so, so beliefs, or any idea for that matter should not be respected. Um, nothing, nothing is sacred in this way, um, and it's it's that's all ideas have to be given this equally harsh treatment in order for us to have any hope of, of finding the truth. Otherwise, we're going to fall into pits. Right. And I I think I could even argue that doing that, like challenge having a belief or challenging others' beliefs, is in a way respectful because you are taking it i if i challenge your belief i'm taking it into my own consideration and if if i truly mean to challenge it in the most well-meaning sense ever you do have to essentially this is where people say i guess be open-minded you're right you in a way have to be open-minded to trying to understand the idea well like what what if i question you on a belief that happens to be say true 
And, you know, but I don't think it's true walking into it. I need to be prepared for you to deliver a real argument and convince me. Right. Um, you're, you're not merely challenging a belief. You should not merely be shouting someone down and, and calling them stupid. Um, it should be it should be an invitation to explain their position in a way that might actually satisfy your conditions for accepting a belief. Exactly. It, and that goes that ties all the way back into uh, the reason for engaging discourse in the first place is to move is to move everybody, all members of the discourse, towards the truth. Like that's the goal. The ideal outcome is all members move closer to the truth. The you know, the middle ground, the well, not middle ground, the lukewarm, I guess, outcome is at least one of you maybe moves more toward the truth. Of your Which own is volition. at least positive. It is positive. I mean, maybe net zero, but well, no, not net zero. If we have two zeros, and then we have a zero and a one, we're greater than True. we were before. True. I, yeah, I, I guess you're right. I guess I should. I guess I guess was wrong to assume that one person would have, I don't know, negative one themselves. This and is not, this is not a zero-sum game. Right, right. And I think that you're right. Yeah, that would have been wrong for me to try to look at it that way. Um, and then, of course, the worst case scenario is that we, we just wasted both of our times. You mm -hmm. know? And uh, not only our time, but anybody who may have taken interest um, and for some reason that does that, that reminds me back uh, you were telling me at one point about uh, the limits of the participants in a civil discourse um, I think we've all had those moments where you know something was kind of starting to brew you know between two people and then someone else jumps in and mm -hmm. it I know for, you've told me a good story about when that have had that's happened to you before it was a while back but you uh, I think you may have been trolling a forum at one point and uh, launched into and began engaging a discourse with another person and then someone else out of nowhere uh, just it totally sets everyone else off and uh, there, there is something magical about a discussion between two people uh, it, any, anything else is uh, well to, to use the term a third wheel it kind of screws up <laughs> It, it screws up the whole arrangement because really, you know, human communication does work best between between two individuals if it's going in more than one direction. Exactly. I, I agree. And I think it has something to do with the fact that, uh, well, I, I will say I had the best three-way conversation I've ever had over the weekend um, with two other people. And it was in such a way that if you were to look at, it was a political discussion, and I'm not going to get too far into it. But if you were to align us on a political chart, you know, a liberal uh, x-axis of liberalism to uh, conservatism. conservatism, and then a y-axis of libertarianism to authoritarianism, I'm, I'm, again, just as a rudimentary mm -hmm. way of mapping us, we formed an equilateral triangle, or is pretty close to one on that chart. Uh, and we were able to have a roundtable discussion where neither of us sided directly with the other on every topic. But the fact that between, the, I guess anytime you begin in, into a dialogue, you're building up on each thing that has been said before. And each person is rapidly interpreting those things. And when it's just two individuals, the point is very, it, it's as clear as it can be from that person. and. Uh, as soon as another person comes in, I guess this is kind of tied into maybe the way humans are tribalistic in nature. It's we there's always that subconscious factoring of okay, is he on my side or is he on their side? 
and even if it's neither of those things is true or that's the wrong way to look at it altogether, it's distracting. And having to entertain two ideas at the same time mixed in with you know you know two unique ideas at the same time is just uh, yeah it, it's 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 difficult. You're, you're totally right. Having you know just a two-way conversation is so much more easy. It's so much more easy, so much easier. Um, and uh, I think there are a lot of things that humans do in pairs that are a lot better off than uh, when you get to any other size. Um, I like the old saying or the adage that uh, a person is smart, but people are stupid, you know? And that's, that's uh, I think that's been proven uh, in study is that people, the more people you add into a group, the more difficult it is to organize those people or for those people to be able to function in a peaceful and cohabitary manner. Which is intuitive. Sure, you know, anybody who's ever been in a crowded room knows that. Um, but, uh, and I don't think it's any secret that you and I, uh, and I think we're gonna talk about this more and more, but you and I are innately, you know, if not libertarian to the point, it's more, uh, we, we value the individual as the preferred scope, or at least the starting scope when discussing any topic is the individual, or that's the most important. Uh, and I think two people is as big as group as you can get and preserve individuality in a, you know, to a point, um, especially when those two people are engaging in discourse. And uh, because it's just both individuals, both, what we each would have at stake, you know, and I feel like we could kick this can a little bit more, but I think that's pretty much well sums it up, you know. I think so. And, and that's what we're here to do, I guess, in the most, you know, that's again, just feeds back to what we're here to do, you know. Uh, I wouldn't mind having people come on and talk to us in the future, but that's a different format. You know, it's, it's a different thing. Uh, um, for, for Maybe the, on that note, it would be a good idea if we were to have, uh, guest appearances for one of us to take the back seat sure. to the guest. No, I, I think I would be perfectly okay with that. And uh, because we are individuals, I do feel like that one of us, I don't think it would be a difficult discussion to have either. You know, <laughs> I think there are people that I would definitely like to talk to more than you would and vice versa. Um, you know, this having damn preferences and all. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah. I'm looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a good thing. I think we're going to. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting down to the topics and actually have something a little more guided. I feel like, uh, you know, for another disclaimer, I, I won't say that this is uh, the only time we'll ever wander down tangents, but that's also kind of the point as well. Um, I find that wandering down tangents, you can find some neat little nuggets. Everybody Sometimes can. the tangent becomes more interesting than the discussion itself as originally planned. So, I guess philosophers. Philosophers. That's who we are and what we do. <laughs> <laughs>